This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to Talking Dirty episode 25. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking kind of charismatic in caramel, it's Alan Edward Herbert Gray. Herbert, the happy, handsome horticulturalist, as we've come to know him. And over in Cambridgeshire, <laughs> looking absolutely divine in navy blue and caramel, dare I say, <laughs> we have Thordis. <laughs> Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen in all her wonderful glory. And I must say, your hair has a wonderful tonal quality with your jumper this morning. Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, we, it's like we've got like a caramel memo. It's like we dress together, except we're about 100 miles apart. <laughs> no, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and here to educate, inform and generally delight us is someone I'm very excited to bring to the podcast. She's a professor, no less. Professor Jane Rickson, who is an expert in soil erosion and conservation at Cranfield University. Um, hello, welcome to Talking Dirty. And do you have a middle name to share? Hello, good morning. Hello, nice to meet everyone. Um, my middle name is actually Jane. Uh, and it's my first name that, that might have a bit of a story that might be of interest. I don't know. But uh, my first name, and actually, this is a very good party game, because you ask people to guess what my first name is. And then it begins with R. And of course, I get the Ruths and the Rachels and so on. But actually, my first name is Richmull which is not a very common name. And it, it comes from, the people may have heard of the author Richmond Crumpton, who wrote the Just William stories. And I'm named after Richmond Crumpton because her niece, this, it, we'll finish this story in a minute. Anyway, her niece <laughs> is also called Richmond um, and she played tennis with my parents. And so my parents knew another Richmond, not the Richmond Crumpton, but Richmond. And they thought that's an unusual name, we will give our middle daughter, uh, uh, an unusual name and a very plain name. And then she can choose which one of those she is known by. So uh, so I'm very proud of being Richmond, but uh, I'm known as Jane. <laughs> At what point did you decide to opt for Jane over Richmond? Well, to be honest, I mean, it's a lovely idea that your parents give you a, an unusual name and, an, and then a plain name and you can choose. But you know, children, you you know, from, from day one, you get called a particular name. And, um, you know, by the time I was sort of conscious to know that I had two different names, I was known as Jane. And it would have perhaps been a bit contrived if I'd then suddenly decided, right, from day this day forward, I want to be known as Richmond. <laughs> I mean, I know people do that. I went to uni with people. There were people at uni that changed their names just as they went to university. And that's absolutely fine, but I'd keep forgetting. People would say Richmond, and I think, who are they talking? Oh, that's me. <laughs> so no, I'm just plain Jane, just plain Jane. <laughs> well, you're definitely not. I love uh, my parents did not. My parents did not give me the option of a plain name. It was Thordis, make or break. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yes. Yeah. But I'm very. I I love being Richmond because um. And, and of course, also, um, I have a different name. So I use a different name at work than I than my official name. So I really am a, a sort of, I don't know what the word is, sort of uh, a spy, because I, I, in some circles, when I'm at home, I'm known as Jane Timms, and that's me. 
uh, but I could, and I could be rich more Rickson at work. So it's, it's very, in fact, I've confused myself. So I'm going to stop <laughs> talking about it. I like it. A woman of many names. You can go incognito yes. wherever you like. I know. It's all very, got dark glasses. <laughs> well, or like a big newspaper and you're peeping through the little peepholes. That's me. Whenever you see that happening, that's me. <laughs> well, for the purposes of this podcast, your Professor Jane Rickson, how did you come to be an expert in soil of all things? So I am, I am a geographer by background. I'm very proud to be a geographer. Geographers get a very bad press because everybody thinks that you can just colour maps and know the capital city of all the countries in the world, neither of which I do very well. So that doesn't, that's not a good start. But I, but I, um, I, I studied geography and I particularly was interested in physical geography, which is the, the study of, of landforms and processes and, uh, you know, plate tectonics and, you know, glacial retreat and all of that stuff. And um, I then decided that I wanted to do something with land. I wanted to sort of be involved with land and land management. So I specialised for my master's I, um, and took a master's degree in agricultural engineering, uh, which was all about how agricultural engineers manipulate the land, how they sort of cultivate the land, how they till the land, sow, sow the plants and so on. And, uh, and of course, with the environment moving up the agenda, be, you know, how important the environment is to us for water retention, controlling flooding, carbon, you know, sequestration, all of that. Um, so I, I just specialised more and more into land. And then it seemed to me that the fundamental capital of land is the soil and what we do with the soil, how we look after our soil and value our soil. And, and that's really how I got into soils and soil science. And uh, I think my first job was uh, 1985 as a, as a teaching associate in soils, and no two days have ever been the same. I love my job and I love soils, and I'm very, very fortunate that, that I do something I love. That's pretty good, you know. So there we can go. I, that's that's can, it I in <laughs> can I ask you something? I mean, it's, it's very fundamental, rudimentary, call it what you will. Um, but, you know, gardening um, is all about soil disturbance, I suppose, really. Yeah. And I'd just like to know where you stand as a soil expert on the dig or no dig method as prescribed by somebody like Charles Dowding. Do you know of his work? I'm afraid I don't. I'll be honest with you, but I certainly know of the debate between uh, dig or no dig. Well, no dig, um, but basically it, what it means is that you don't disturb the soil, obviously. But I think what you do is you actually put a layer on top of the soil, a mulch of whatever chosen material it is, and that gets worked into the soil by the earthworms, goodness knows what. Um, yeah. and therefore, you're not disturbing the fragile balance of the soil, because I don't think that most gardeners perhaps are aware of the, perhaps the fragile balance in our soil of microorganisms and all the other little bits and pieces. Mm, it and is, but it, it, of, of course it is, it does depend, I mean, there's a very long answer to that, but anyway, it does depend on the soils <laughs> that you have. I mean, for example, in England and Wales alone, we have over 740 different types of soil from your heavy clay, boring, wet, you know, clay soils. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of imagine what's on, but really heavy um, with very low porosity. Not much air is getting into the soils because very, very small pools, pore spaces right through to the very sandy soils that we've got drainage problems. We've got big macro pores between the soil aggregates, which means we've got very droughty soils, very draining soils. So the first thing I would say in answer is that there are so many different types of soil. 
I think what we've got to get the balance is between what I call the physical and the biological and the chemical balance, as you quite rightly say. Um, so the physics, what I'm talking about there is we've got to have enough large pores in the soil that we get drainage, but we also have to have a distribution of little pores, small pores that will hold on to the moisture through surface tension to be available to the plants when it stops raining, you know, when we have a drought. So, so physical characteristics. And if you're working on a very compacted soil, the easiest thing to, if, you're, if you need a short solution to that compaction is to put a spade, get some air into that soil, break up that compaction, but then leave it alone because the microbes, I was talking about the biological um, characteristics are those microbes, the fungi, the bacteria, the lovely earthworms that we love will do your job for you. I think Darwin called the earthworm the, 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 the greatest earth engineer or something, something to do with the earthworm being an engineer, little hard hat and everything. I'm not sure, but um, you know, that was Darwin did a lot of work about earthworms. And they can manipulate that soil to, to, to bring that aeration and all of that lovely nutrients and so on. And then the chemistry has got to be right as well. So I would say if you've got long term, if you can look to long term, leave it alone, let the bugs do the work for you. That's that's kind of but pe people have short term. They want to get on with it. I want to get on with it. I want to do a bit of recreational digging. <laughs> There's two things I would say to that. First of all. And watch your back if you're doing recreational digging. I mean, that's number one. I think the first thing I'm immediately thinking, just from what you said, albeit very briefly, um, yes, you're getting some air into that soil, which is important because roots need air for development. Um, and the other thing is then leave it alone. I think, you know, that's yeah. a, an admirable thing to do. I mean, we're mm. going to be moving the soil about as we garden anyway, because we're going to be planting and we're going to be digging things up. We're going to be pulling weeds out, all of which mm. is disturbing in a certain amount. But as little as possible, perhaps, is a bit of very yes. good thing. Yes, yeah. You know, I'm a great advocate for mulching because um, where I garden, it's a, it's a light sandy loam, very high fertility. It, yes. In agricultural terms, you will understand this, it's grade one, um, so it's a good soil, but we do, um, in times of drought, we do fight um, against the soil drying out. So we're continually mulching, we're using anything we can that will as you said, you know, there's little bits that hold on to the moisture that, that are so mm -hmm. important to, to get mm -hmm. into the soil. So it, that's what we do uh, as an annual basis. And I think that's what you do when you know your soil. I mean, once a gardener knows the soil in their particular garden, they can, you, they can work with it rather than again it. Mm. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. I think that is the first thing, know your soil, because you might be on a heavy clay and things that you do to a heavy clay would not be appropriate for a light sand. And so mm. that's the first thing. And of course, a lot of people ask, well, how do I know what, you know, what, whether I've got a clay soil or a silt soil or a sandy soil? And I was taught, this is probably breaking all health and safety rules, but I was told that um, if you really want to know about your proportions of clay, I mean, all soils are a mixture of clay and silt and sand. And uh, I was told many years ago that if you want to know how much clay is in your soil, you take a piece of soil, just a little bit, and you, it's not very ladylike, spit on it. It's not very ladylike at all. And um, the amount of stain that you get on your hand, it, that's the clay particles that will stain your hand. And then if you want to know how much sand there is, and this is probably where we all die of E. coli and botulism and salmonella. But anyway, you actually take a piece of the soil in your mouth and you see how much crunch there is. And that will tell you how much sand there is. 
both of, well as I say that eating one is not recommended because you know it's not very good for you but that's how I was taught rule of thumb if you need to go don't bother sending off to a lab although that will give you an accurate result but see how much clay you've got and find out how much sand you've got and that will indicate whether you've got problems with drainage or with um, anaerobic conditions if you've got very wet cold clay soils those are horrible but a lot of us have to deal with those in gardening and uh, the important thing is try and get that air into it as you say Alan very important yeah over the the previous sort of 10-15 minutes you've alluded to various components of soil we're beginning to build a picture of how complicated it is but I would like you to give us the full picture if you if you're explaining what exactly is in soil what is it okay all right well um generally speaking the, the most important component are the mineral components so these are the minerals within soil and this is what I mean about the clay particles are very very small very tiny clay particles um, then we have the silt particles. These are again, this is the mineral component. And then we have the sand particles and they're the biggest particles. Um, and they have all sorts of different characteristics. So clays, for example, they tend to stick together. They have very high cohesion. So you get clumpy, cloddy soil if you've got lots of clay. Whereas the sands, they don't have so much cohesion. So they tend to be much lighter and friable. And as I say, tend to have a problem with drought because they've got large pores between these large grains of, of sand within our soil. So we've got, first of all, and that makes up about, and um, now you've got me, I, I think I'm right in saying this probably won't all add up to 100% now, but let's say that's about, oh, now I'm really regretting saying this because I'm going to have to make it up to it. But I think that's about 45% of a typical soil. About 45% is that texture, your sand, your silts, your clays. Um, and we use a textural triangle, which tells us um, what exactly type of soil you have. So if you have an even mixture of clay, silt and sand, we call that a loam because it's got a bit of everything. Um, but then if you've got 100% clay, well, poor you, but that would be a clay soil. But if you've got a bit of sand and a bit of silt mixed in with your clay, then it might be a silty clay loam or a sandy clay loam. These are beautiful words you know that mean something to soil scientists but you know and then you get a sandy clay loam or a clayey sand loam that's different <laughs> just oh anyway so sorry so that's about 45 percent and then in an ideal world you'll have about 25 percent yeah this will work out i've worked it out my maths has worked out about 25 percent of that soil lump will be air will be pore spaces where you can get the oxygen into the roots and so on the other 25% will be water. So we know how important water is for plants, but also for the microbiology within the soil as well. So I think that's right. 45% of the, the grain, the material, the texture, the, the mineral material, 25% air, 25% water. And the other 5%, if you're lucky, is organic matter. And that is your mulching, Alan, that will have been pulled down by the, the earthworms. And there are different types of earthworms. There are earthworms that do that and there are earthworms that do that. And these guys are the good guys. Well, they're, they're good guys too, but these are particularly good guys because they'll bring your mulch material down, mix it all in. And we know how important organic matter is. So important. It affects your nutrient cycling. It affects how stable your soils are, how they keep that aggregation to allow those macro pores to form and so on. So 
that's I mean obviously every soil is different but that's the kind of typical distribution of those different things the minerals the water the air and the organic matter content um, and of course yes you'll have the odd plastic spoon in there as well if you're in a contaminated site or something so there's always going to be somebody who will phone in and say yes but I found some plastic you know spoon in my soil so there's always a bit of contaminate well no there's not always a bit of contamination but that's kind of what you get in a normal soil and you've got the earthworms but then also, yes. I mean, they're the ones that we really see. And of course, we might come across a little slug or a beetle, but there's the organic side of it. Although it's a small percentage, is, a, is an incredibly eclectic affair. Mm, yes, yes. Well, there's a lovely expression that, I mean, it's the microorganism, it's the whole food chain. Uh, you know, you've got your fungi and your bacteria and these tiny, tiny little microorganisms. And apparently um, in a teaspoon of soil, there are more microorganisms than the whole population of China. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. I was, at, I was at a school and I was talking to some kids, which is the toughest gig ever. I don't mind standing up in an international conference, you know, 400 people. I'm okay with that. But going into a class of 37 and eight year olds is the worst gig in the world, I tell you, because you just don't know where they're coming from. So I was saying, you know, oh, in a teaspoon of soil, there are more microorganisms than there are for the population in China. And then little lad, he said, looked at this thing and said, well, I can't see them. <laughs> okay, but they are there, I promise you. You get me an electron microscope and I will show you them. <laughs> It is amazing, though, because, you know, even those of us who love to grow plants and who, who are trying to improve our soil, I don't think we really appreciate everything that's that's going on in there and how important mm. that balance is. Mm. It It is. And it's very, to be honest with you, to, to, to be serious for a moment, it is very easy to degrade your soil in a moment. But it takes much, much longer to build up your soil health or your soil quality. And this, this is the problem. You know, uh, you see sometimes farmers are forced to go onto land when it's much too wet. It's been very wet around here uh, and farmers have been going out onto the soil. And if you go onto the soil when it's too wet, it compacts and it gets very, very heavy and you compress the soil uh, because it's wet. And that that you can do that in a moment in one pass of a heavy tractor. Uh, but then alleviating that, taking that compaction out um, can take many, many more operations, you know, subsoiling, you know, the energy required to actually take that compaction out. Um, and that's why it's great to see farmers using things like cover crops and root crops that are used to break up that compaction and bring some structure back into the soil. And that can be done at any scale in a, you know, in a window box, really. You can take that compaction out to allow that air and that water to come into the soil. Um, but yeah, we, we do need to look after our soils. We, we're not getting it right everywhere. We're getting it wrong in some places and it takes so much energy to then put it right. And I know you deal predominantly with agriculture, but certainly, you know, Alan and I, we've, we've talked about gardening for years together. And um, you'll quite often hear from new gardeners, maybe people who've got a new allotment or have moved to a new house. And it's always, you it is always a rush to to cultivate it to turn it into a garden but Alan I know you've talked probably your whole life about that sort of prior and proper preparation and actually putting the hard work in at, at the front end of a project. Yeah I think it's very important in actual fact I mean I, I learned most of that I have to say from Beth Chateau 
um, who was the, I mean, she was the protagonist for starting, when you start a garden, I mean, you start down there, sort of, you know, almost a meter below the surface, if you like, if, if you've got bad drainage, you've got to put some drainage in and things like that. But I mean, here, where we took, I mean, one of the things that Jane just mentioned was compaction, soil compaction. And when we took some land into the garden that had been agricultural, one of the things that we did notice was that the soil was very compacted. Mm -hmm. I'm going back quite a few years now, but there was also a lack of earthworms. There just weren't any. Um, and I don't know whether it was just the compaction. I don't know why, whether it's just mm -hmm. the compaction or whether it could have been pesticides that we used way back then that were probably a little bit more formidable than they are today. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the first things we did was we, we bought a subsoiler and put it on the back of a tractor, which is like a, a hook that goes about, I don't know, 60 centimeters to a meter below the surface and you drag it through the soil and it actually opens everything up. Mm -hmm. um, and we did that before we started any, any form of cultivation. The other thing that we did in various parts of, of the garden that were um, agricultural land was we killed off all the perennial weeds. Um, I'm talking about things like cooch grass, which are very invasive um, and difficult to get rid of. So we killed all those off using a glyphosate weed killer. And I hope, Jane, you're not going to tell me that's bad for the soil. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we killed it off and we used something as common as spent mushroom compost. And we mm. spread that over the area and we left it for two years, um, oh, yeah. which, which is comes mm. back to your point, Jane, where you actually say it takes a long while to get those things back in motion. Well, two, two years is nothing in the grand mm. scheme of things. But I mean, mm. that helped because it allowed that earthworm and that, that earthworm <laughs> 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 yes. to come to the floor yes. and give us a hand, which they did. Um, yeah. And that worked very, very well. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. I think the earthworm is a great indicator, actually, of soil quality. It's a very good indicator. Uh, you know, you can just, and again, uh, you know, just dig up, dig up your garden, you know, take a spade full of soil, see how many earthworms you have. It's a really good, it's not very scientific, you know, because it depends on what time of day you dig, how deep you dig, what time of year you dig, blah, 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 all of that. But actually, that is a really good indicator of whether you've got that food chain working for you under the soil um, and you know people are very very passionate about earthworms you know people do whole phds just about one type of earthworm um, so you know there's a lot of scientific um, evidence out there to demonstrate how important earthworms are I think um, and darwin darwin didn't miss much you know as i say he <laughs> thought they were great creatures and uh, uh you know good for him yeah <laughs> Yeah. I think it took us from no worms to earthworms in that land about three years before they yeah. came back. But I mean, they came back. And so that yeah. we, which thrilled us because we thought, well, yes, we're doing something right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. We had a really interesting PhD, which is relative to that, because, um, again, forgive me for using the agricultural um, example, but I do think it has applications for, for other scale um, of land management as well. And he was looking at um, a practice known as strip tillage. Um, and what this is, it, it, it's sort of a halfway house between, you know, many farmers, they, they do conventional cultivation where they cultivate the whole of the field. And obviously that's having the disruptive effect. It, it's necessary to build your seedbed. You want to find tills to produce your seedbed. But at the same time, it is disturbing a lot of the soil and killing some of the earthworms and the microbes and so on that we've talked about. So this strip till idea is that halfway house between that conventional tillage and no tillage, zero tillage, which, which even some farmers practice now. 
whereby you only you only disturb the row in which you 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 drill you put the seed and and this phd was looking at well have i preserved the biology in between those rows yeah um am i getting still earthworms because i've only cultivated in those rows so are my earthworms and my microbes still happy in the middle and the answer luckily was yes but it was even better than that because then these microbes and the earthworms then migrated into that disturbed layer so that we actually got beneficial biological beneficial effects from having that reserve that pool of earthworms and microorganisms that then cultivated sorry not cultivated then um, migrated into that disturbed area and that was great because we not only did we preserve them, but they actually improved the soil that we had then disturbed. That's amazing. Just reinforce the idea, I think, that if, you go, if you're going to disturb the soil, do it as little as possible because yes. the bits yes. that you do not disturb will benefit the bits that have been disturbed. Absolutely, yes. I know that you are very much sort of a hobby gardener and wouldn't count, count yourself as any sort of, you know, plant expert. But with all of this knowledge filling up your head, when you turn to your garden, is it, is it, does it sort of overtake what you do with your garden? Are you always led by the science or do you just think, oh, you know, this is, this is my downtime? Oh my goodness, what a question. What a question. I'm oh goodness. That thank you for putting me on the spot like that. Um oh dear. Am I practicing what I preach? That's what you're asking, isn't it? Oh dear. Well, I uh, just wonder whether you can escape it because you live and breathe it. And I don't think I've ever met anybody more enthused about soil. Um, I suppose I haven't met that many people who are soil experts. But I just no. wonder if you could escape it and let it go and just, you know, dig a hole. For no, a no, I don't think so. I think it is a vocation, really, as well as it's a career. It is a vocation. So. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I am an amateur gardener, but um, it doesn't it, it doesn't make me a good gardener at all. I've got so much to learn. And uh, uh, so it's what is it? Is it Colston, Newcastle that people say? I'm not sure what it is, but um no, I'm not. I'm not very good. I have to say, I'm not a very good gardener. But um, but I love soil and I love digging soil and uh, you know seeing what's in there and you know the smell of the soil, just things like that, uh, are just um, you know just really fascinate me. And we're so dependent on it. You know, if you think what you had for your breakfast this morning, ninety four percent of our food comes from soil. And, you know, worldwide. And that's a really exciting um, statistic. And of course, there's always going to be people who've had kippers for breakfast, which then it doesn't apply. But, you know, a large proportion of our, our food and think what you're going to have for lunch. You know, 94 percent of that will come from soil. So it, it is an amazing thing that we just overlook and undervalue, to be honest. We just see mud, you know, that brown, muddy stuff that gets my clothes dirty. But it's fundamental to our being, really um so yeah I'm, did you see how I deflected your question about are you you know how's your gardening <laughs> I, I thought that was very astute of you Jane <laughs> well this was always going to be a different podcast anyway we wanted to to focus on soil rather than plants but I did ask if you wanted to bring any show and tell and you've brought something a little different as we might have expected from you from me for me is it my turn is it, it is. my turn I want to see what Alan's going to bring as well. okay <laughs> So, so my show and tell, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? Yeah. This is a four leaf clover. This is a four leaf clover. And the reason I've, I've brought that as my show and tell is that I'm, I'm very fond of clover. Clover, first of all, because it's very, very good for the soil. 
Number one, it grows very quickly. So you can get clover established fairly quickly. Number two, it's a ground growing um, plant, which is very good for erosion control. So my, my specialism is looking at uh, the rainfall, how it runs off and causes erosion. But if you can get clover to grow as a low growing canopy crop, it intercepts the rainfall, takes the energy out of the rainfall, so the rainfall is not able to erode the soil. So that, that's another reason. Um, it's nitrogen fixing. It is so clever. That dear little plant <laughs> takes nitrogen out of the atmosphere and then brings that nitrogen into the soil. It's called, they're leguminous species. So any legume is able to do that. It will fix atmospheric nitrogen and put it into the soil, which then it can be used in the nutrient cycling for the bugs and the earthworms and so on and so forth. And then my fourth and most important, given the times we're living in, a four leaf clover is lucky. <laughs> and let's hope that 2021 is lucky for all of us, just like 2020 has not been a good an unlucky year for many people. So let's hope that is lucky year for 2021. I rest my case. Leguminous plants, uh, of all members of the pea and bean family, which we grow in our vegetable gardens, um, they all fix nitrogen into the soil, uh, which yes. is one of the reasons you, 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 you rotate your crops around so that you can leave that nitrogen for the next plant coming along. Yes. So it's, it's a very important yes. thing, lovely. Yes. Yes. You know, you said, Clover is very good for fi fixing soils, you know, um, stopping erosion. Yes. Well, that, that's what marram grass does on our seashores, isn't it? With It grows in pure sand, lots yes. of salty atmosphere and everything else, but it holds the sand together. Yes. And I remember yes. many, many years ago, I was lucky enough to go to New Zealand. And oh. New Zealand, I mean, it was like England 25 years ago, you know, probably yeah. not like that today, but that's what it was like then. Yeah. And it was fascinating. And they were planting the... They're, they call them motorways, they're not, they were dual carriageways, but I mean, they were planting the banks of them with agapanthus because agapanthus have such a root system that they will stabilize mm. the soil today. Mm. Those mm. agapanthus become such a nuisance. I mean, they're the wrong plant in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, they're being yeah. discouraged from growing them. Yes, well, that's really, well, it's very interesting. I, I, I have a, funny enough, I'm teaching at the moment, my, my MSc students in environmental engineering. And just yesterday morning, we were talking about the use of vegetation as an engineering material, just as you've described. Yeah. And um, there's been lots of, of examples of where vegetation is used, as you say, to stabilize slopes, to control erosion, wind erosion and water erosion. But equally, there are some species that have been an absolute nightmare because they've been introduced to do something, but then they've just become a nuisance. So Japanese knotweed is probably oh. one of the most well-known. And I'm delighted to note there used to be, and I don't know if there still is, but there used to be a gentleman at Cardiff, Cardiff, so you can imagine along the coast, Cardiff City Council, whose whole job, his job title was Japanese knotweed officer. How cool is that? What a great job that would be. And all his job was to go around and find, um, you know, where this invasive species was found because it is an absolute pain. Yeah. And it's a certifiable, um, I think it's, you know, you have to report it to the Environment Agency you if you find any. You do yeah. have to report it. And I think it can actually, if you have it growing close to your house, it can affect yes. the, sales of your the sale of your house as well if you want to sell it. Yes, it's well, I, I've seen it, I've seen it, 
yes growing through tarmac and asphalt yeah. it's mm. so pervasive yeah. which you know was 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 a good thing when it was introduced like all of these invasive species it was brought in with very good intent but the unintended consequence is somebody in cardiff city camp <laughs> <laughs> now i feel some flomo coming on if you are unaware of the the term it's basically fomo for a plant something you've seen and desperately want to grow now jane i'm not going to put you on the spot because you've already described yourself as an amateur gardener though i don't know if you have any sort of they don't have to be particularly uh, specialist plants but are there things that you kind of generally want to add to your garden well, I do. I do love fuchsias. I have to say, I do love fuchsias, um, and um, I'm not. They they seem to like me, which is a good thing. I always think that it's a two way relationship, really, between plants and and people. So I do love fuchsias, and um, uh, I love my hanging baskets. I'm a bit of a hanging basket freak as well, which obviously is not particularly good this time of year, but. Um, so the, those are the things that I take pride in. You know, it is a little bit competitive in our village. You know, who has the most verdant hanging basket? So, um, so those. But of course, they they are very droughty. I find they're very demanding <laughs> in terms of you know. You yes, but you know, you know what, Jane? All the village, the whole village is going to say hers will be wonderful because she knows all about soil. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that doesn't follow. As I said earlier, unfortunately, it doesn't quite follow that, you know, a soil scientist has got a beautiful, immaculate garden because uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should give Jane some kind of competitive edge. Alan, is there anything that you uh, you think Jane should add to her hanging baskets this year to give them a bit of extra? Oomph? Well, I do. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a very simple solution to the problem. When you are making your hanging basket or whoever you get to make your hanging basket, put in the bottom of it, line it out with your moss and whatever you use, yeah, yeah. And then put in the bottom of it a little reservoir. And I mean a plant saucer so that that will keep the water in it and stop it all from, you know, stop the whole lot from draining through. And that will retain a little bit. So maybe you won't have to water them quite so often. Very good. May, may I ask a supplementary question? Am I allowed a supplementary yes. question? So where do you stand on nappies, Alan? Nappies? <laughs> yes. Somebody told me once that the gel that is kept in nappies that absorb all the, the moisture from nappies ah, yes. could yes. be used in hanging baskets to improve water retention there. Well, I'm sure it could, and I don't see why it shouldn't, because any kind of those pads that absorb moisture, and yeah. we all know what we're talking about here... <laughs> can be dissected and the gel taken out and the gel could be incorporated into the soil. And there is, I mean, there are various products on the market, which is, is called soil retaining gel. And you yeah. mix it into your compost and it does exactly what you said. It absorbs the moisture and it releases it later. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank I you. love the You're idea always. of putting a nappy at the bottom of your hanging basket. <laughs> I thought, you, I, th I was imagining it was going to be a used one, so it fertilized as well. <laughs> hope nobody's watching this while they have their lunch or anything no. <laughs> now my flomo is a little bit of a follow-on uh, last episode we um you alluded alan to the ever-increasing trend for dried flowers which is yes. a bandwagon i've been jumping on for a few years every year i like to try uh, something different i think it was um the good old status the good old sea lavender that i tried a different color of this year 
think it was apricot, something apricotty. And each flower seemed to be slightly different. So some were lemony, some were apricotty, some were a bit violet, and they dry beautifully. So this year I want to try a different kind of flower I could dry. And it's the globe amaranth, which I probably can't say, but I think it's Gumfrina globosa. Yeah, Gumfrina, is, is that, you've got it right, absolutely. <laughs> And they look like little, uh, they look like drumsticks with yeah. a boing boing on the end, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Little pom-poms. Yes, um, exactly. Little spherical heads. And I've not seen one in real life, but they're described as having papery petals. So I assume they're a texture similar to the good old helichrysum, the straw flower. Yes. Which I love. Yes. I can't yeah. get enough helichrysum, so I'm going to grow even more helichrysums next year. Um, and I'm going to add some globe amaranths to the mix as well. So hopefully those little pom-poms can then be in my dried flowers at the end of the year. Absolutely. Well, well done. <laughs> well, that's my plan. I haven't grown them yet, Alan. <laughs> you will. And then, of course, we need a bit of Flomo from Alan Gray. This is strange, isn't it, when we've got Jane on here today and I'm talking about a plant that really doesn't grow in soil as such. It grows in detritus. <laughs> it goes in detritus. Oh, you're, not the, you're, you're not one of these hydroponics people, are you? No, not, not at all. Not at all, because <laughs> it grows in the kind of detritus the, from fallen leaves and all that kind of thing. And it's an epiphyte and it's called epiphyllum. And this is it. Uh, this is a branch for one of my epiphyllums, which unbelievably is a, known as the orchid cactus. It grows in, in the um, in rainforests in the understory. And so it doesn't require an awful lot of light. It does like heat. It does like moisture. This one is slightly withered because it broke off the other day. And I'm going to root that. Um, and I will root it in soil, but a very open mix because it likes lots of air around the, um, and this stem will actually produce roots. I've uh, dried it off at the end so there's no sort of liquid or wetness around it to encourage rotting. And I shall have to keep this somewhere quite warm to actually get it to produce roots. But strangely enough, these cacti flower May, June and July. Um, optimum time rubber for the whole lot of them is June. And they have the most flamboyant, huge, huge flowers. It can be six, seven, eight inches across. And they last a very short time, but they're such a fleeting just a glorious thing, really. Um, the, la <clears throat> the larger the flower, the less you get of them on a plant. But I would like to increase my stock of epiphyllums. And I remember going to Wisley, um, uh, the RHS garden at Wisley in Surrey, at the correct time, it was just the right time. And I went into a greenhouse and on the way into this greenhouse was a kind of entrance vestibule, a glazed entrance vestibule. And it was just full of these uh, epiphyllums on show and they were in yellow, magenta, bright, shocking pink. Do you know thunder? There was even a luminous orange one. You would have loved it. Um, <laughs> because she loves orange, you see, Jane. Uh -huh. um, and I just like to get um, more of these. So if anybody sees this podcast and they know somebody that sells these wonderful epiphyllum cactus, please let me know because they just think they're lovely. And you are very good at making more of them. You did a, a video, I think it's Get Your Fill of an Epiphyllum on our channel, which has actually That's been right, one, of, yeah. one of the most popular over the past couple of months. Um, lots of people sort of having a go, cutting their little sort of V-shaped cuttings. If, and if, you take, if you take a single leaf from an epiphyllum and you cut it into chevron shapes, just let the cuts dry or seal over. Let them callous a little bit. Three or four days should be enough. And then you just put that pointed bit into a very gravelly mix. Keep them very warm. Keep them moist. Not too moist, but just keep them moist and they will root for you. Before we let you go, Jane, it's a brand new year for us to make New Year's resolutions. Is there 
something that we should be doing in our gardens? Is there a New Year's resolution we should make uh, when it comes to our soil and, and getting the best out of it and treating it better? Well, I, um, I always think it's important to improve soil health. There's a lot of people are talking about soil health, you know, from, from individuals right up to government. I mean, even if we see some of the policies coming out of government, it's all about soil health. And DEFRA produced this 25-year environment plan, which is that we need to improve our soil health. And I think that happens at the local level. That happens at the garden level. It's not just for large landowners to be doing that. Every, every little helps, as they say. And I think um, what we can be doing is, is using the soils better for, you know, I mean, even things like taking, this might be a bit grand, but, you know, people are worried about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and global warming and all of this. And um, we know that anything that you grow is going to help take carbon dioxide out of the, out of the air. And that's one of the most um, pervasive uh, greenhouse gases. So just by growing anything, frankly, and I know that you'll, you'll be cross with me just to say anything, but <laughs> it takes that carbon dioxide out of the air through photosynthesis. And that, okay, every little helps. That's all I would say. It's probably not going to make a massive change, but if we all did that a little bit, there may be some change in terms of taking carbon out. And of course, the soil is a huge store of carbon as well. We can put so much carbon through the organic matter that we put in our soils. We can then use some of that carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere and store it, take it down, store it in our soils, where it is much less dangerous for the environment as a whole. And by doing that, we also improve the habitat for all our bugs and earthworms and so on, which is the soil biology that we've talked about. So that's always a good thing. Um, so no, treat your soils well and, and they will reward you because you will get the fertility back, you'll get the nutrient cycling, you'll get the bugs, the birds, the bees. It's all one connected system. So if you even if you're a bird watcher and you're not that interested in, in your garden, for example, then, you know, what is the food supply for those birds? Where is that coming from? A lot of that is going to come from the soil. Um, so, again, I'm just passionate about everything can be linked back to the soil. You know, Jane, my granny, Granny Gray, she had a saying and it's a saying that's often said between gardeners and it is 10p for the plant and a pound for the hole. Yes. So you've got to yes. put goodness into the soil every time you plant something. And if you do yes. that, you will improve absolutely everything. Just yep. grow, grow, grow. Yes. yes. Except if it was okay. Granny Gray, was it a tuppence for the, for the plant? Well, and it, the... Yes, it would be. I mean, it would have been something like, it would have been like tuppence for the plant and two shillings for the hole. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you translated it for our benefit. Open. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, it has been such a pleasure. Um, I, I was absolutely bowled over the first time I met you and you told me about soil. It, it's one of those experiences, one of those interviews that stayed with me for years. So I'm delighted Aww. we could invite you along to the podcast and, and spread the joy about soil to more people. I'm delighted and thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. As I say, the problem is not getting me to talk about soil. It's getting me to shut up about soil, to be honest with you. So thank you for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Really enjoyed Lovely it. To thank meet you, Jane. And you, Alan. Very good to meet you. Yeah. And, uh, have a wonderful 2021. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. 
If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.